May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Thank you for being here today. As Scott comes out. Am I on? I'm on. Yeah. Um, and we're really, really happy to have Deacon Karen back. Yay. This is good. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about this gospel reading. And the big idea is God knows our needs and is faithful to provide. He is also the God of the impossible. The God of the impossible. Sometimes the miraculous in the Bible, miracles in the Bible are hard to believe. And sometimes we feel like we need to modernize them a bit. A young boy burst out of his Sunday's excitement. Seeing his father, he ran up to him and said, Dad, that story about Moses and the Jews escaping from Egypt was incredible. Looking down with a smile, his father said, tell me about it. It happened like this, the boy said. Moses and the Jews got out of Egypt and came to the Red Sea. They couldn't get across, and the, Egyptians arm, the Egyptian army had them trapped and almost caught them. But at the last second, Moses got on his walkie-talkie and called the Israeli Air Force to bomb the Egyptian army. At the same time, the Israeli Navy built a pontoon bridge, and the Jews walked across to the Red Sea to safety. Shocked, his father said, they didn't really tell you that, teach you that in Sunday school. He said, not exactly, replied the little boy sheepishly. But if I told you what they really said, you'd never believe it. <laughs> it's like that sometimes, isn't it? I don't even think so. Um, this is the feeding of the 5,000. It's interesting that this is the only miracle that is in all four of the Gospels. The only one that you see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the end of it, it said, five, it's, at the end of the story, it says 5,000 men. And it does, but also there's women and there's children. So it's not just 5,000 that were fed. More likely, it's 20,000 that were fed. 20,000 people, not just five. It's probably 29 AD. It's getting to the end of Jesus' ministry. This is wrapping up the, the uh, Galilean ministry. And his disciples have just come back. We, last week we talked about the disciples going out two by two. And now they're coming back and they're debriefing and they're saying what happened, the healing, the casting out of demons, the preaching of repentance, the people coming to faith. It's all wonderful. But the crowds are so big. It says they don't even have time to eat. And so Jesus says, we gotta, we got to go get some rest. We need rest. We need to find time to rest. I have a hard time doing that. My wife can tell you. I don't know what it is. I just can't. I have a hard time just sitting or not doing anything. I feel like I need to be doing something, you know. Hmm? Doing something is not resting. So I'll come up here sometimes during the week and I'll just sit. I really do. I'll just, or I'll walk. I'll walk around. So I'm doing something, sitting. But I think it is important to rest, renew, refresh. From time to time, we've got to kind of just slow down, take a break, and let that happen. This is what Jesus is trying to do now with his disciples. We need to go out. We need to go on a retreat. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get in the boat. We're going to get away from these people. So they get in the boat, and people go, oh, I know where they're going. So they all scurry around the other side of the lake. And they meet him there. 
and they get off the boat. And Jesus says, will you guys please give me a break? I've had enough of you. Ah, why do you think we got in the boat in the first place? To get away from you people. Jeez. Or maybe he didn't do that. <laughs> that's probably what we would have done, but that's not what he did. He's not irritated. He's not angry. He's not resentful. In fact, he welcomes them, and he says he teaches them. And he's probably healing them right along with it. And it says he had compassion on them. That comes from two words, compasio, with suffering. It's not sympathy. It's not pity. It's not even empathy. It, compassion is entering into the suffering of other people. It's like taking on that, that pain. It's this heartfelt, gut-wrenching identification uh, with people. And this is what Jesus is feeling says they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is why he had compassion on them. And we know from Scripture who our good shepherd is. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So he sees these people, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and it breaks his heart. It just breaks his heart. Because left to our own devices, when we try to do this on our own, we're weak, we're helpless. We're foolish. We're sheep. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a wonderful man of God. He was a theologian in uh, Germany, and he came to the States in the 30s. And he had a wonderful job at Union Theological Seminary. Where is that, Tom? Is that New York? Union. And a uh, nice cushy job. And, and the, uh, I think 1939. He went back to Germany. He snuck back into Germany because he saw that the, that the national church had kind of caved into the Nazis, and he said, this can't stand. And he went and he started an underground seminary, and from there these pastors would go out during the war and have these underground churches. This was who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. At the end of the war, they captured him. He's in prison. They want him to be on the negotiating team to end the war. He says no, and they, they hang him in the town square. I, I think the week the war ended. But here's what he said about this, these people and their condition. He said there were questions but no answers, distress but no relief, anguish of conscience but no deliverance, tears but no consolation, sin but no forgiveness. That's a very tough place to be. But so many people are exactly in that place because they don't know the Lord. They're living life on their own. They're sheep without a shepherd, and their lives are out of control, and it reflect that's what it reflects. It's sad. Because the sheep need a shepherd or they're going to die. Because they can't feed themselves, they can't clean themselves, they can't protect themselves. If a, if a sheep falls over on, rolls over on its back, and all four legs are up in the air, it will die because a sheep on its back cannot right itself. I didn't know that. 
Jeep cannot just get back up. Once it's on its back, it's over. You need somebody to come and roll you over and pick you up and take you to safety. The problem was the shepherds in those days were useless. Ezekiel 34 says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Oh, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding uh, yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. And it goes on and on and on about the condition of the shepherds that were supposed to be looking out for the people. And it wasn't because there were too few of them. There were so many of these priests, shepherds, that they had to have a platoon system to work in the temple. Remember Zechariah, the son, father of John the Baptist? He was, in the, he was in the temple during his one time during the year when he got to be in the temple. These, these, these groups would be divided up into platoons, and they would go at particular times. Once a year, you got to do this. The problem was they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. A true shepherd guides, protects, and feeds the sheep, and it guards against predators. And in our day and age, I think, I think that really means false teaching. And we have so many um, people, churches, groups, institutions that are teaching things that are not true, that are not biblical. Um, those who teach from a biblical standpoint are getting to be fewer and fewer to be honest with you, and it's just the way things are. So, you know, the, the church needs to, to stay strong and stay true to what we've give, been given to teach. We were just talking about this in a Sunday school class with Timothy. Paul constantly says to Timothy, don't deviate from what you've learned. Don't deviate from the truth. Don't be influenced by outside forces in the culture to change what you've been given to teach and preach the people. Don't do it. And that's the charge that that we have as well. Now, today's shepherds, I think, have been called uh, into the world to address the wider issues of the culture that endanger the sheep. And so we've got to minister to the spiritual needs at the root uh, of society's ills. And to me, that means we need to start going outside of the church to see what's out there, what the landscape looks like, Last week, I told you that I had met with several pastors in Ocala. We formed a group called Patriot Pastors, and we're going to be meeting with city officials to sort of get the lay of the land. What is the condition of the city? What are, what are some of the needs that we have? What are some of the things that are coming at us that we might be able to move against? And I'm happy to say that this will be a group of interracial pastors, not just one group or another. And hopefully, we're going to be working together to make this a better place make Ocala a stronger, more uh, godly community in which to live. We've never done anything like this before. Nothing like this has ever happened before as far as I know, and I've been here 25 years, all in all, 24. So I'm excited about that. On a, a local note, um, is Edna here? Edna's here, and Marge is here, and Bev is here. Right? You just don't raise your hand. You just don't want to be noticed. Right? I should probably have you stand up on a chair so everyone can say, wave. I won't do that. If you'll see in your bulletin, there's a 
a, a ministry, I'll call it a ministry, that is going to be reaching out from Christ the King to first responders. And the first group on the list is firefighters. And so after church next Sunday, uh, uh, there's going to be a meeting for this group of people to kind of get organized and say, what can we do, like provide meals or whatever it might be, to first responders that are going to start with the firefighters from Christ the King. Christ the King Anglican Church is now going to reach out to the first responders in Ocala, and this will be a start. You know, so you've got the pastors in Ocala, you've got the church reaching out, and yesterday I had an interesting incident. So I go to, I go to Publix, and I'm at the deli counter, and the, the, the woman who's waiting on me, she's got this accent, and I think, I'm thinking she's from the British Isles. So I said to her, I said, are you from Ireland? She said, no, I'm from Scotland. Scotland. I said, oh, okay. Her name was Glad. Interesting name. And I had ordered, I wanted some, um, I wanted a pound of Publix Munster and a pound of Publix Genoa salami. So she does the Munster. She says, all right, now, here's your boar's head, Munster. I said, no, no. Oh, no, no, it's Publix. It's Publix. That's okay. Now, you want the boar's head, Genoa? I got no Publix. She said, oh, I'm sorry. I have a headache. I'm not thinking straight today. Sorry. So when she's done, she said, will there be anything else? I said, yes. I'm waiting with bated breath. What she said. <laughs> it's true. I said, "Come on over here." So we went around to the behind the deli counter. I said, "You have a headache." She said, "Yes." I said, "Let's pray about that." She's like, "What?" I put my hand on her head. So I'm praying, and then I anointed her with oil. I thought she was gonna fall over dead, <laughs> but you could just tell that she was taken aback, but very grateful that somebody out of the blue, very unexpected, had just prayed for her headache. You know, we can do that. That's a simple little thing. And I will never forget her. I'm waiting with bated breath, she says. <laughs> it was funny. Anyway, I think it's safe to say that Jesus sees every broken heart, every physical ailment, every emotional need, every spiritual problem, every crippled child, every abused wife, every depressed father, every rebel rebellious teenager, everybody that had a broken ankle, everybody that's wearing a boot, everybody that's doing anything, right? Somebody said, everybody you meet, be kind to everyone you meet because everyone you meet is hard up against it in some way. Everyone you meet is going through something they don't want to go through. Everyone you meet is going through something in their life and some condition exists in their life that they wish didn't exist. And then the question is, how do I deal with, with that condition that doesn't seem to want to do what I want it to do? And I think that now more than ever, that's really the case because so many things seem to be disheveled and uprooted and different, sliding and moving, and we're trying to figure out what's coming next, you know. But Jesus says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. And the good news is he knows us. He knows us. He knows me. He knows my heart. And he wants to be my shepherd. Now, the people in our story, they're tired, they're hungry. The disciples want to send them away to get something to eat. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? You're in the middle of nowhere. There's thousands of people, and you don't have anything to feed them with. Of course we're going to send them away. 
But Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now, that's an impossible demand. You give them something to eat, right? And then they become absolutely disrespectful to the Lord. I mean, they, they come across like, you've got to be kidding me. I thought of uh, I thought of the uh, scene in Cool Hand Luke, Strother Martin. Uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Do you see all these people? Do you know how much money Jesus it would take to feed these people? Two hundred denarii. That's eight months' wages for an average worker, and we don't have it. problem is we add, we, you know, so he says, what do you got? What do you got? Um, he puts us in spots and he just says, he just says, do something. How many loaves you have? Andrew goes and finds this boy and the boy shows up and he's got five loaves, right, and two fish. Five loaves and two fish. The loaves turn out to be barley biscuits, all right? Think of Triscuit without the cheese. Triscuits, he's got five Triscuits. And the fish are sardines, okay? They're not fish, they're fish. Our problem is we add five and two and we get seven. Jesus adds 5 and 2, and he gets 20,000. He's really not good at math, but that's okay. He wants us to know that without him we can do nothing, but with him nothing is impossible. Don't be uh, discouraged by small things, right? We should not miss the obvious lesson here. Don't ever despise the day of small things. Just because something is small or seemingly insignificant doesn't mean God can't use it. He used the baby's tears to attract Pharaoh's daughter, and the infant Moses was saved from certain death. Later, he used Moses' rod to deliver the children of Israel, and still later, a teenage boy named David used one smooth stone to defeat the mighty Goliath. And now Jesus is about to feed 5,000 men or 20,000 people with five biscuits and two fish. Size doesn't matter with God. He can use anything that we offer to him. Jesus commands him to sit. It's a command. It's not a request. There's no option. Sit. And they sit in groups of 50 and 100. And then there's a sequence. He takes the bread. He blesses the bread. He breaks the bread. He gives the bread. Take, bless, and give. These are the four elements of the Eucharist. Take, bless, break, and give. It's a forerunner of the Lord's Supper. It's a forerunner of the Holy Eucharist at the Last Supper and what we do here today. This is really, really an important thing to Jesus. Take, bless, break, and give. It's an important part of what we do in our identity as, as Anglicans. As we come together, 
to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on a regular basis to strengthen us and empower us, to help us get through. It's really an amazing event in our lives, and I hope we appreciate it. It was certainly important to Jesus. Steps to a miracle, admit your need, offer what you have to the Lord, follow his lead. There's a story I want to give you about God's faithfulness. Sometimes we, we think God didn't do what we asked. He forgot about us. And we forget about him. Roger Sims, hitchhiking on his way, his way home, would never forget that day, May 7th. This heavy suitcase made Roger tired. He was anxious to take off his Army uniform once and for all. Flashing the hitchhiking sign to an oncoming car, he lost hope when he saw it was a black, sleek, new Cadillac. To his surprise, the car stopped. The passenger door opened. He ran toward the car, tossed his suitcase in the back, and thanked the handsome, well-dressed man as he slid into the front seat. Going home for keeps? Sure am, Roger responded. Well, you're in luck if you're going to Chicago. Not quite that far. Do you live in Chicago? I have a business there. My name is Hanover. After take, talking about many things, Roger, a Christian, felt a compulsion to witness to this 50-ish apparently successful businessman about Christ. But he kept putting it off till he realized he was just 30 minutes from his home. It was now or never. So Roger cleared his throat. Mr. Hanover, I would like to talk to you about something very important. He then proceeded to explain the way of salvation, ultimately asking Mr. Hanover if he would like to receive Christ as his Savior. To Roger's astonishment, the Cadillac pulled over to the side of the road. Roger thought he was going to be ejected from the car, but the businessman bowed his head and, re and received Christ. Then thanked Roger, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Five years went by. Roger married, had a two-year-old boy in a business of his own. Packing his suitcase for a business trip to Chicago, he found the small white business card Hanover had given him five years before. In Chicago, he looked up the Hanover Enterprises. A receptionist told him it was impossible to see Mr. Hanover, but he could see Mrs. Hanover. A little confused as to what was going on, he was ushered into a lovely office and found himself facing a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended her hand. You knew my husband? Roger told her how her husband had given him a ride when hitchhiking home after the war. Can you tell me when that was? It was May 7th, five years ago the day I was discharged from the Army. Anything special about that day? Roger hesitated. Should he mention giving his witness? Since he had come so far, he might as well take the plunge. Mrs. Hanover, I explained the gospel. He pulled over to the side of the road and wept against the steering wheel. He gave his life to Christ that day. Explosive sobs shook her body. Getting a grip on herself, she sobbed. I had prayed for my husband's salvation for years. I believed God would save him. Anne said, Roger, where's your husband? Mr. Hanover, he's dead, she wept, struggling with words. He was in a car crash after he let you out of his car. He never got home. You see, I thought God had not kept his promise. Sobbing uncontrollably, she added, I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought he had not kept his word. But God is faithful. Three things we can take away from this. Most of us face at least one seemingly impossible situation. 
right now. And if you don't have one in your life right now, you will. First thing is, the fact that something is impossible is no excuse for not trying to do it. All too often, we conclude that something can't be done, so we don't bother trying to do it. If Moses had taken that attitude, the Jews would still be in Egypt. If Joshua had felt that way, he'd still be marching around Jericho. If David had adopted that opinion, Goliath would still be terrorizing the Israelites. If we thought that way, a lot of us would still be at grace. Well, probably not, but you never know in advance what God may do, so don't rule out the possibility of a mighty miracle coming your way right now. The second thing is God asks us to do the impossible and then gives whatever we need to obey his commands. Edwin Lutzer is a wonderful author and um, seminary professor, pastor, he points out that Jesus often told people to do impossible things. To a lame man, he said, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. To a dead man, he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. There's a true sense in which every command of God is totally impossible for us to obey. We always lack what we need to obey God's commands, but God is faithful to give us whatever we need when we ask him. And finally, when we offer our meager resources to God, we discover that the impossible isn't. Um, J. Hudson Taylor was the wonderful missionary who opened China to the gospel. Time and time again, he saw God do amazing things in the face of hopeless circumstances and murderous hostility against him. Reflecting on his experience, he remarked that there, is, there are three stages in any work attempted for God. Impossible, difficult, done. I love that. Impossible, difficult, done really encouraged by that because there are many moments when we all seem to be stuck in the impossible stage of life. But cheer up. You never know when your impossibility may be as simple as stage one. I think of Bishop Peter down in South Sudan. Uh, he's been here. You know him. We pray for him every week. Um, he's recently dealt with malaria in his body, malaria, typhoid, and now he has ulcers. Um, serious ones. And you can deal with malaria where he is. You can deal with typhoid where he is, but ulcers are a different story. He's struggling with that. He's also struggling dealing with the, uh, the government of, of South Sudan. He's dealing with the hierarchy of his church, and he's also dealing with some people in his church that are kind of out of control. Two years ago on Christmas Eve, rebels broke into his church and killed 18 people. And when he was here, I remember asking him, and then his family had to go to that refugee camp in Kenya. They're still not back in Sudan. I said, have you ever thought about leaving? He said, leave? How could I leave? This is where God has called me. I am the shepherd. These are my sheep. I cannot go. I cannot abandon my sheep. It never occurs to him that he, that he could go someplace else. He is just faithful in trusting God to do the impossible in keeping him alive and safe and well and whole. And I just, he was so, he was so much fun to be with. He was telling the stories of, of him growing up, drank directly out of the Nile River, right? I said, you drank out of the Nile? He goes, my whole life. If you did it, you would die. The bottom line on all this is very simple. Start with what you have, give it to Jesus, and see what he will do with it. Don't limit God. 
He might even send the Israeli Air Force.
No matter what it is facing right now in your life, the challenges you have in your life, it is not too hard for God. Bring it to him in an intentional, purposeful, new way. See what happens. Amen.